0: Uh, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and Happy New Year! Uh, I can't believe it's 2018. I mean, just yesterday it felt like Y2K was was upon us, <laughs> and the world was going to end. Now it's 2018. Um, I was talking to the couple co- people this morning, and and New Years are are uh, they're pretty arbitrary, right? We made up the calendar, so we've made the New Year happen, but at the same time. It gives us this chance for a restart, for a reset, for like a, a, a clean, a clean slate almost. Uh, so I just want to start off by giving you guys some tips. because uh, a lot of times we have New Year's resolutions and we wanna we wanna do things differently. First, start off by just reflecting on 2017. Just, just reflect on what God did, on what prayers were answered, on on this just small victories and celebrations. And allow that to, to push you into 2018. Think about what, what you might want to improve from 2017 into 2018, and then don't go into it saying you're going to have a, a complete 180 happen in the first week of 2018. Because odds are you're going to your, put your New Year's resolution into practice, something's going to happen, you're going to miss a day, a time, what, whatever, and then you'd be like, ah it's not worth it and then your whole year is shot so do it incrementally like say that say if you so for me I'll give you what I want to do so I I look back at 2017 and and I said I just wanna I wanna pray more I wanna spend more time with Jesus in prayer Uh, so I could say I'm gonna wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I'm gonna do this well guess what tomorrow morning that ain't gonna happen so, I'd um, so be a failure immediately. Um, instead, what if, I, what if I said, and I haven't fully figured this out yet, instead, what if I said, okay, I'm going to take these two days each week and I'm going to devote those to the, to the Lord, these two times on these two days, and, and do that. Because here's the thing with, with goals, especially like when you think about working out or improving yourself, we, we think we set goals and then we see results, then we're going to continue on in our, in our resolutions. But... Uh, it takes a long time to see results. Anybody work out in here? It takes a long time uh, unless you 're David Cho to see results. David Cho is built with that Superman physique. Uh, me and David Cho <laughs> David Cho and I. <laughs> and, and uh, it, it just takes a while to see results. Results do not keep you in your resolutions. They do not keep you going, not external results like that or goals or hitting goals it 's actually how it makes you feel like working out. they say what keeps you working out is you just get a good feeling. You feel more confident. Your chemicals are going. Your metabolism is up. You just feel better. Um, I know if I start praying more with, start spending more time with Jesus in prayer, dedicated prayer time, then I'm just going to be like, yeah, I love this. And then and then eventually I'll be doing it every day, hopefully. So um, just a few tips for you. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning, really. But we are entering into a new series we're going into Daniel and uh, and those are the three words that we're going to take throughout the entire year scriptural spiritual awakening that's what God wants for our church in 2018 so if there's a new year's resolution for Trinity Life Church it's this scriptural spiritual awakening Uh, a lot of times we hear spiritual awakening uh, but I wanted to say, and and God wants to do that in our church and in our city. But I wanted to root that in the cooperation of the Word of God with the Spirit of God. So that's why scriptural is there, um, and then it's just alliterative. It sounds cool. So that's why that's why both those are there because the Word works with the Spirit, okay. And if we're gonna have spiritual awakening, we need it grounded in the Word of God. We need it grounded in uh, in the scriptures so we're gonna take this theme throughout Daniel 1 through 6 but we're also gonna take it throughout this entire year so the entire year 2018 all of all of our teaching series all, our, all of our small groups and our BLG's are focused towards towards us all of our ministries are focused towards this. everything that we do in Trinity Life Church is focused towards this scriptural spiritual awakening and you'll see how everything fits into that as as the year progresses but we're only doing Daniel 1 through 6 because Daniel is broken up into two major sections it's the first six chapters is narrative it's a story of Daniel and and what's and and what his life is in exile and then the last half 7 through 12 is is all these visions so we're not gonna deal with the visions Although you guys are probably a little disappointed in that. You guys probably would want me to deal with that. But we're not going to do that. We'll go into uh, another series after that. Maybe we'll come back to it sometime. This series, we're just doing Daniel 1 through 6. Okay, so like I said, this is what God wants, wants for our church. <clears throat> Those who know me really, really well um, know that it's really hard for me to wake up in the morning. Like, it's, it may be physiologically impossible sometimes. <laughs> like, I, I just, I, I'm not a morning person. I just, it's, it's hard for me to get up. There's, there may be a psychological hindrance. I don't know. Like, it's always been there for me. Um, now, you may, if, if you don't have this problem, so they say only a very small percentage of the, of the population are, will con, are considered night owls. The rest of you guys, you guys don't have issues getting up in the morning. You're you're fine. Like Missy, her alarm goes off and she's out of bed. She's like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, she's she's ready to go. I'm like groggy and moving slow. I I don't talk until I get out of the shower. I gotta like I'll do all my stuff to get ready. Until I get out of the shower, like don't don't talk to me. That's that's what wakes me up. Um, but it's it's always been it's always been difficult and those of you guys who are night owls you share my condition you know my pain you can empathize with me the rest of you guys just probably think I'm lazy and that's not true um, because I still get up early it's just really difficult so if anything that makes me that makes me <laughs> a harder worker than you <laughs> you you hear me Kelly right you know what I'm talking about so um, because uh, I literally, I think I have a physiological hindrance to getting up early. So, but I still do it. And in, in high school, this is how I tried to train myself to do it. In high school, I, because summer I would sleep in all the time. Uh, but then in, when school started, I'd have to get up at 6 a.m. So a week before school started, I would set my alarm for 6 a.m. to try to train my body to wake up at 6 a.m. It didn't work. My mom would have to wake me up every morning to get ready for school. Um, unfortunately, I think one of my daughters has this condition. <laughs> I won't tell you which one. Uh, in university, I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm trying to train, I've been trying to train myself to be a morning person for years, and I've heard you can actually do it. So in, in university, I said, I'm going to schedule my classes early in the morning so that I'll be more productive. So... First day of university, 8am, Monday morning, calculus class. Big mistake. (laughs) I was late every time, (laughs) like literally I was running late every time, running to my class. I got an A in it though. Um, But uh, I don't know why I did that, calculus, it it was, that was, that was dumb. In my 20s, um, I kind of put the responsibility for getting up onto somebody else and that's on Missy, my wife, and basically I shifted all that on her and said, you have to get me up in the morning. Like I need you to help me get up. Um, Unfortunately, that's continued until this very morning. (laughs) It happened this morning at 6 6. 11 Uh, a.m. She's like, get out of bed. You're supposed to be praying right now. Uh, So I I probably have an unhealthy dependence on that. Um, And then in my 30s, I thought, okay, What if I, what if I train myself like a baby, like sleep training. Babies go through sleep training. You, you, you kind of work with babies to get them on a sleep schedule. What if I put myself on a sleep schedule and, and maybe that'll help me become a morning person. Seven years into my thirties, still working on it. It hasn't worked. Um, so part of my new year's resolution is to stick to my sleep schedule. And, uh, hopefully by the time I'm 40, it'll have, it'll have stuck. But God, and, and the thing is, God is trying to, a lot of us are like me. We're sleepy Christians, we're groggy Christians, we're, we're followers of Jesus, but we're just kind of moseying on through life, we're trying to get the gunk out of our eyes, we're not really talking to people because we're just sleepy, and God's trying to wake our church up this year. God wants to, God, we, we'll, we'll see in the book of Daniel that God is trying to wake up the people of God there. And, and he's, he wants to do that for us this morning. He wants to wake you up. He wants 2018 to be a year for you where you're not a sleepy Christian any longer, but you're actually living full on for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, he wants to wake you up to salvation. He wants you, wake, he wants to wake you up to him to who he is, to his love, to his peace, to his joy. And a lot of us who are Christians, we're sleepy Christians because all the stuff that we just sang about, that he is faithful, his his love, his peace, his hope, his joy, we don't actually live like we believe those things. And we're just moseying around. And God is trying to wake us up. And here's the thing. uh, Here's the bottom line this morning that we're going to take through it. Spiritual awakening will happen when we return to scriptural action. Spiritual awakening will happen when we return to scriptural action. I don't mean to say that you need to do something. The spirit wants to do something in you, but I don't want us to have just have scriptural awareness. That's just something cognitive. And God isn't about just putting things in our head. He wants us to live in a transformational way. And so this scriptural action isn't something that we do. It's something that the scriptures do in you as you dwell in the word richly. They transform you when the spirit works with the word of God and the scriptures. It's transformative. And the reason you, you haven't been living in hope and peace and joy and life, those things that we sang about, the reason you're just moping around like a sleepy Christian is because you haven't allowed the word of God to dwell in you richly and to allow it to transform you. So this year... I want our church to pour into that, to allow the spirit to pour into us, and to allow the scriptures to transform us. And that's what we're going to see through the book of Daniel. Daniel is, is a person who exemplifies this statement here. So this bottom line, I'll probably end up taking it through the entire seven weeks of, of the series. So that hopefully this like gets into our brains that... If we want spiritual awakening to happen, we have to let the scriptures work in us. Scriptural action has to happen in us. So let's look at the book. Let's, let's see. Let's start off. There's a bunch of names in here that, that Missy read this morning. Teresa, when she saw the passage, she was like, I feel sorry for who's reading scripture this morning. Um, Missy did an awesome job uh, in all these names. We'll, we'll go through them uh, starting in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so... What Daniel, what the, what the author of Daniel is doing here is giving us, a, his, he's giving us context. He's giving us history. And let me just briefly give you what, what's going on here. Jehoiakim is, is a king of Judah. He's not a king of Israel, okay? Israel and Judah split up hundreds of years before, before he became king. Into After Solomon happened, so was King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Solomon uh just and in some ways he was a great king in some ways he he turned his back on god and god took the kingdom from him and split it up into ten tribes here israel and one tribe here judah okay now you're thinking oh there's 12 tribes yeah there's there's well i won't go into that but there's an explanation for that so um the simple one is the tribe of levi isn't counted because they're spread all over all all over the land so Assyria comes in and exiles Israel. So there's Israel now and there's Judah. Okay. Israel Assyria comes in 722 BC and, and, and they take they take Israel into exile and, and that's why you hear sometimes like the about the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's because they're really never heard from again. Like that's it, that's it for them. Only Judah remains. Okay, only Judah remains. And this and Judah is the line of Solomon. And that's significant because this is the line of Jesus, okay? This is the line of David, this is the line of, of Solomon, this is the line of Jesus that he's going to eventually come through. So when we see this name Jehoiakim, uh, we should think, okay, the Messiah, Jesus, is coming through this, this lineage. And this is happening six, around 600 years before Jesus comes, okay? So the author here is giving us this, this picture of what's going on, and he says here, that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who wasn't a very good king. Not a lot of them were very good kings. They turned their backs on God. Uh, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, he, he comes in and he, he ransacks it. Why? And why is that significant? Significant because all the way back in Deuteronomy 18, God says, if you follow me you're going to be blessed these things are going to happen i've given you this land to be a light to the world to be a light to the nations but if you don't follow me then consequences are going to ensue things are going to happen that aren't blessing because of your disobedience because you've turned your back on me that's what's happening here that's why it's significant because now the king of now judah was the only one that remained Israel, that nation had turned its back on God. They got vomited out of the land. That's, that's the terminology that the Old Testament uses. They get vomited out of the land. And then now Judah, they were the remnant, the one tribe left that was loyal, and now they're being taken over. Why? Because they decided not to follow God anymore. And the whole point of the nation of Israel, the whole point of those tribes, was for them to be the people of God, to show the nations who God is, to be a light to the world. They decided they didn't want that anymore. They didn't want to do that. So now Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and God allows it. He allows it to happen, because it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So God's in control here. It's, it seems like a bad thing, but God's in control here. God is giving Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And what's, what's interesting here is that word for Lord, sometimes you see Lord in, your, in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew scriptures, you see it in all caps. Sometimes you don't see it in all caps. Here, it's not in all caps. And that, that's because this is, this is not Yahweh, the name for God. This is, this is not God's personal name. The name, when you see the, the Lord in all caps, it always refers to God's personal relationship with his people. This is the more general term, Adonai for for lord. And it's it's almost like the author is saying the relationship is broken. The covenant has been broken. The people have rebelled, they've turned their backs on God, and and he's he's not Yahweh to them anymore. Not because he chose it, but because they chose it. And he says, "The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels." And another thing, Jehoiakim is I think third to last of the kings. There aren't many more kings after Jehoiakim. Like the, the monarchy is about to be extinguished. So uh, it says, He gave into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of, of Shinar to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he, he takes the sacred possessions of the temple of God and he takes them and he places them in the temple of his own god this is spiritual warfare this is this is a we see a battle going on here now when you see gods and god and all that in the scriptures um, like why think about this why would israel turn their back on the god of the universe who rescued them out of egypt who did all these things for them who who yeah they've seen all these miracles why would they turn their backs on them it's because they were enticed by the world and when we see when we see uh nebuchadnezzar take the possessions these sacred possessions and put them in the house of his own god we think oh well in our day and age we're like oh well maybe he just made up some god that he worships in all likelihood that's not the case um you know, the, the reason the Israelites were enticed, the reason they were enticed by the world was because there's actually real power there. There's actually real power. It's the demonic. It's, it's the enemy. It's, it's the evil one. It's Satan, the, the one that we've seen from the very beginning who says, I can give you all this. They're still being enticed by that. Even though they've seen God work miracles and they've seen him take care of them and love them, they're still enticed by these other powers. And so when Nebuchadnezzar does this, in all likelihood, he's not just doing it to something carved out of wood and stone. He's doing it car- to something carved out of wood and stone that has demonic influence and power behind it, okay? And that's why Israel has, ha- is going back and forth in this battle. So, so Nebuchadnezzar does this, and he, and he takes these sacred possessions, and he puts them in, in uh, the temple of his own God. And then um, he does it with God's people so he does it with the sacred possessions and he, now he's going to do it with the people of God. What he's trying to do here is indoctrinate and assimilate the people of God into Babylon. Okay? He's trying to acculturate them. He's he's taking them and he's trying to make them into Babylonians. So so what follow that with me here. He says, "Then the king commanded Ashpenaz in verse 3 his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, uh, just a, a, a word on, on eunuch, um, in case some of you guys are wondering what that is, uh, that's just, it was a servant of the king. A eunuch is, <laughs> um, a eunuch is someone who's been castrated. So this was a specific servant of the king who's, who's been castrated for, I can give you all the purposes why, uh, sometimes they worked in the king's harem, sometimes, and, and you know, you don't want them with the harem. Um, and then for, there are other reasons too. But so when you see eunuch, that's, that's what it means. That'll come back later, which is why I mentioned it. So Ashpenaz's chief eunuch, he asked him to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. What's really cool in the Hebrew there, the royal family is literally, can, is literally uh, the seed of the kingdom. So he asks him to bring the seed of the kingdom, To Babylon this this word seed is is a word that you can trace through the entire Hebrew scriptures beginning back in Genesis 3 verse 15 where where God says uh, where God says you know there's all these consequences for what you've done Adam and Eve but I will send a seed I'll send an offspring I'll send the Messiah Who's going to conquer all this? Who's going to redeem you? Who's going to make things right again? And that word seed you can trace through the Abrahamic narrative. You can trace through through all through the the Hebrew scriptures. And here it's used again. And the author is saying, remember, this is God's plan. Remember, God is working here. God is moving here. And the Messiah is still going to come through here. All is not lost. God's trying to wake you up, people of God. He's trying to wake you up, is what the author is trying to say here. So here, the seed of the kingdom, verse, where were we, verse 3, end of the nobility, verse 4, and then he does this. uh, He brings youth without blemish. So we'll stop. stop, I'm going to stop throughout this whole passage, but he brings youth without blemish into Babylon. Why? Notice he doesn't bring old people. He doesn't even bring people in their 30s, for those of you in your 30s. He doesn't even bring people in their 20s. He brings youth, most likely under 20 years old, without blemish. And that that word without blemish can mean without moral defect or physical defect. It can mean one of those, either those things or both of those things, without moral or physical defect. but why does he bring youth because he recognizes if he's gonna indoctrinate if he's gonna assimilate if he's going to make an entire nation of people an entire culture into a new culture Babylonian culture and bring them in there he's gonna have to start with the next generation of leaders everyone else is set in their ways he's starting with the youth because he's trying to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture It's not good enough for Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the people of God. He wants to take away their identity. Does that remind you of of anything? That's the world we live in. That's how the enemy uses culture today. It's not just enough to, to, to conquer the church and make the church a minority in the society. He wants us to look like the culture. He wants to strip away our identity. And one of the biggest lies that we have right now in the church is that we need to look more like our city in order to reach our city. We need to look more like everybody else our age in order to reach people our age. And the enemy gives us little glimpses of that, of success for that, of small victories where we see people coming into faith. But all the while, we're losing our identity as the unique people of God. And we're losing our power. We're losing what makes us the people of God. And that's what's happening here. And so he starts with youth because, generally speaking, a lot of times youth are more impressionable and they're more malleable. And that's why he starts there. Um, now, don't take that as a bad thing. Okay, sometimes we, we say, oh, youth are so impressionable. No. That's actually a good thing. Youth take, youth love taking risks. Youth, uh, youth uh, love to try new things. Youth, um, they don't, they, they, they say they have it all figured out, but they know they don't have it all figured out. By the time you get in your 20s, the world says you're supposed to have it all figured out. You're supposed to look successful. You're supposed to be on, on a track in your careers. You're supposed to be on track uh, in relationships. And then by the time you hit your 30s, you're supposed to be focused on living comfortably, you're supposed to be focused on getting a house, you're supposed to be focused on raising your family. By the time you're in your forties, you're supposed, you're you're basically set in your ways and you realize, why did I do all that? Midlife crisis ensues until retirement, you retire, you play golf, and then you die. That's the circle of life. (laughs) That's horrible, right? Which is maybe why Jesus says we should have childlike faith. Which is maybe why uh, he talks about us like youth and, and says that we need to have this mentality. Because by the time, you're in, your, by the time you're, you're in your later 20s and 30s, you're not really taking risks anymore. You're just trying to maintain what you got. You're just trying to maintain the status quo. Most of you guys in your 30s, aren't going to give up your career and your house and your family, uh, your family dynamics, to go on the mission field somewhere. Because you'd have to get off your career path. You'd have to sell your house. Like, what's that going to look like? Most of you in your 20s are trying to build to get there. So in your later 20s, you're you're not going to take those risks either. Unless you were already conditioned to take those risks as a youth. Does that make sense? So Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that, and he's like, I have to get the youth, and I have to, I have to, start, to start to acculturate them to Babylonian culture. And then he moves on, and, or, or Daniel moves on, and he says, These youths are of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, and dealt with knowledge, understanding, learning. They have a passion for learning, uh, and they're competent to stand in the king's palace. So these are just scrubs. Like these are, these are the, the, the ones who, again, have a passion for learning. They're, they're ambitious. They're, they they want to move forward. He wants those ones. He's like the lazy ones. They're not going to, they're not the culture makers. They're not the culture shapers. Let's, let's get the ones who are going somewhere. And then he wants to teach them the literature, the history, the narrative, and the language, and the stories, and, and. And how think about language, it's how you speak, it's how we communicate, it's mannerisms, it's all these things. He wants to give all that uh to these Hebrew youth. And then he said, and then verse five says, the king assigned assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. So this acculturation, this indoctrination goes even as far as food. Think about how cultural food is. When every time my family gets together. Uh, my family with my, with my mom, so our family with, with my parents and, and my sister, we always have a Thai meal, like a full-on Thai feast, where mom makes all this Thai stuff, and, and we just eat it together. And it's very cultural. It's very, it's very, um, it unites our family. We always look forward to it uh... my mom makes her own spring rolls and she makes her own she makes her own everything it's it's just amazing um... and and it 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 defines the culture of our family uh, i was talking to daniel yesterday and he says they one of their family traditions is they get together and they was it con you guys eat kanji right was it kanji queen <laughs> uh... yeah whatever that is but they go to kanji queen and that's like a tradition for them and it and it and and it's something that brings them together uh, we do this in our BOGs, our small groups. That's why we have a meal together, because it, it gives us the time to, to make culture together. Uh, think about, just, just think about you know, going out with your friends. It creates a friend culture and, and, and family culture and all, all these things. So that is, that's actually what this is right here. We'll take communion later, and it's creating a certain culture in the church. Nebuchadnezzar knows that. So he says, hey, come eat my food. Come dine with me. Drink this wine, eat this food. And then it says they're to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they are just stand before the king. Education is, is key for indoctrination. Uh, and he knows that. And he's going to educate them in all these ways and more. And just think about today. We, when we think of, this is exactly how nations raise up the next generation, how they want them to. They do it through the educational system. Uh, normally when I say that, we're thinking like, yeah, look at North Korea. They do that. Look at Iran. They do that. Or Russia. Uh, but we do that. Canada does that. That's why education is, is, is so huge. It's not just math. It's not just science. It's not just uh, just uh, English. Like we are in our culture, our Canadian culture is indoctrinating our children in order to raise them up as Canadians. That's why they, they learn Canadian history. I think. Do they do that here? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm American, so <laughs> we gotta teach our kids U.S. history at home. <laughs> um, that's why, that's why uh, we read Canadian authors. Anne of Green Gables. That's Canadian, right? Um, <laughs> uh, that's why we learn Western philosophy and not Eastern philosophy. We're, our, our country, our nation, Ontario, our province is indoctrinating our our children in that way to raise up Canadian leaders so that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing and then he says the and then he says uh among these in verse 6 were Daniel Hananiah Mishael Azariah of the tribe of Judah those are their Hebrew names those are their names given to them uh as as Hebrews and in verse 7 it says the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names and Daniel he calls Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel, in verse 8, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So now, the indoctrination is going as far as their faith because I'm going to show you in a second, by the name change, they're trying to change their faith. In all likelihood, Daniel and his friends are made eunuchs as well. So... Physically, they're being acculturated to Babylonian culture as well. And not just, not just uh, castration, but probably in clothing, probably in uh, just appearance and maybe tattoos and piercings or other things that identify them with Babylonian culture was happening to Daniel. And then we have this name change. And let me show you what these names mean. So Daniel daniel's daniel's name means my judge my judge is god his new name means may bell which is a babylonian deity may bell protect his life so the new name he's given is literally they're literally trying to change his faith by saying we're going to take l god which is in the word da- in the name daniel l would be god and we're going to replace it with bell and so may bell protect his life for hananiah His name means gracious is the Lord, and his name ends with a ya for Yahweh. So the Lord there is is the personal name of Yahweh, it's it's the personal name of God. And they change his name to command of Marduk, which is a Babylonian deity. So now he's not identified as gracious as Yahweh, he's identified as the command of Marduk. Alright, Mishael, his name means who is what God is. Again, you see the L there like in Daniel? Uh, which is the the name for God who is what God is his new name is Meshach who is what Aku is a Babylonian deity and then with the last guy Azariah his name means his name ends like Hananiah's see with the a h the ya his name means the Lord Yahweh has helped they changed it to servant of Nebo indoctrination They're trying to change them and make them like, like Babylonians. What's cool here is that in the text, there's two clues that Daniel and his friends resisted this indoctrination. One, one is that in these names, there's a corruption in each name that the author has put in. So it'll get really technical, but for instance, Belteshazzar should actually be Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. It should just be Belshazzar and uh and the author here puts in the corruption in each of those names to to say it's like a subtle protest it's like no we're not we're not going to fully enculturate uh, or acculturate to the babylonians and then the next thing the last thing is in verse in verse seven it says the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names he set them these names he decided these names for them and then same word is used for daniel it says but daniel set his own mind he resolved that word resolved he set his own mind he 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 uh, made his own decision that's the same word used he says no i'm not going to defy myself with the king's food or the wine and we'll go into that verse uh, next week but what we have here is a picture we have here is, is a picture of daniel and these youth living in exile living in a hostile land living in a foreign land among a people that aren't their people who are trying to strip away everything that they've known themselves to be. Everything that God says they are, the culture is trying to strip it away. And the enemy's feeding lies and saying, "Nope, you're not the chosen people of God. No, nope, you're not supposed to be a light to the nations. No, you're not meant to be holy. No, you weren't meant to serve God. You are meant to do this. And it's trying to strip everything from them by enculturating them by making them Babylonian. That's the picture of the church today. That's the picture of what we deal with in the world today. That's the picture of the church trying to be the people of God, trying to be the household of God, trying to be the family of God, and trying to survive in a world that is totally against much of what we believe. Or at least Yeah, I won't, I won't go there, but there, and, and we're trying to figure out how to live in this world, how to engage society, and Daniel, over the next six chapters, is going to show us how we can engage society, and how we can still be a light to the world, and how we can still bring, bring a nation spiritual awakening, because that's what happens in the book of Daniel. We see here a pretty grim start to the book, you're like, man, Israel The people of God, they're going to be extinguished. They're just going to be Babylonians, and then God's plan is going to be gone. No Messiah, no Savior. Like, what's going to happen? But we see as God is using this to wake the people up, and we're going to see spiritual awakening happen. There's three things that God has uh, laid on my heart for our church in 2018, that he wants to be avenues of spiritual awakening. One is youth, and we see here youth. If you think about youth, youth are, just think about history. A lot of people who have changed culture have been youth. They've influenced culture and changed the world because they're willing to take risks, they're, they're willing to try new things, they're willing to, uh, to step out in faith. Uh, whether that's a religious faith or not, they're willing to just step out and, and do something and try something. Uh, for us, we've talked about youth for years, um, and, and we've never done anything about it. We've talked about things and talked about doing things. We've, we've worked with youth in our city in different ways. But last November, or October, one of those months, we started something for youth in the church. I looked at our church and I said, we have two youth here, and my mentality switched because I was like, well, we don't need to do anything for youth because we don't have any youth, and then I said, what am I talking about? We meet in a high school, St. Jamestown is right here, and it's full of youth, there's so many youth in our city that don't have role models, that, uh, that don't, that are seeking truth, that are trying to just figure their, their, their way in life and find their way in life, and we have so much to offer them what are we doing so we started something for youth last uh, a few months ago and we went from two internal youth uh to bringing in i don't know where's where's kev where's daniel like eight to ten more youth um and having them consistently here at our church from outside of our church now a part of our church and and serving in our church and and doing things in the church one of the youth is serving this morning in, in kid city um, and, and helping with, with our, our kids' program, probably wrangling Archie's kids right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and, and then, and then uh, last, also last year, after we started this, one of the youth came to faith. Like Just by taking one step of faith, we see someone come to Christ, and our youth go from 10 to or 2 to 10 or whatever, whatever it's been. Um, Just by taking one small step. So in 2018, if you look at the church around the world, we don't know what to do with youth. Youth are leaving all religion, not just Christianity. Youth are just fleeing because they they don't know what there is out there. They're trying new things. The church hasn't done a good job of reaching youth, of speaking to them, of including them, of showing them that they're made for something bigger. Um, and, and so in 2018, we're going to focus on that. 225 is going to be a big, uh, a big part of that. Um, and we do a lot of things. We're going to do a lot of things in 2018. Church planting, we're going to continue doing, training church planters and planting churches. And, um, you know, our body life groups are growing. Uh, so much is happening. Our leadership team has, has grown. Uh, we're going to continue doing all these things, but these other three things are going to be part, part of this too so um, youth is is the first thing second thing um i mean saint jamestown is is ramping up Uh, our work there we've been working there for two years now and building relationships and that's been going amazingly we have an opportunity for a space there which is hopefully going to be solidified soon where, where we can engage locally and it's not a worship space it's not an office space it's a space for us to have relationships in the community and to give back to the community and it's going to be a free public use space that we use in the, in the community uh, to do that. And there's more, way more details and way more details will come out on that but it's it's really exciting. It's something we've been working towards for years now and now it's finally coming to, to fruition. And 2018, that's going to change a lot of things in terms of multi-faith and what we do with people of other religions. Uh, when I say multi-faith, I mean what I mean is that's, that's different from interfaith. Here at Trinity Life Church, we talk multi-faith, not interfaith. Interfaith, the impetus is tolerance. Multi-faith, the impetus is love. Um, uh, interfaith, we try to hide our, our differences and, and, and cast them aside and say we can work together. Multi-faith, we say these are our differences, let's work together in light of them. Um, I believe this, you believe this, let's, let's uh, work together still. So that's going to be a huge part of what we do in our city in terms of multi-faith. We've always worked with organizations that are not Christian organizations. We've always worked with people of other faiths as a church. Um, And this is going to be a catalyst into doing that for us. And then it's going to lead us into doing that in other parts of the world. As a church, we were focusing on the West Bank in 2018 and going there. I shared some of my trip with you guys last year. Um... Uh, when I was in Bethlehem uh, in December. And as a church, we have a tremendous opportunity to work with an oppressed people, a people who only has a history of, a, of oppression. This is Daniel. They're an oppressed people in this book, and, and they're still and they're learning how to engage society and be a light to the world. We get to do that in Palestine, in the West Bank. Um, so we'll be taking a couple trips there this year, more to come out on that as well but those are three things that God is gonna help us uh, focus on to bring scriptural spiritual renewal to our church and then to our city it's just really time for us to wake up and I don't want 2017 although a lot of good things happened in 2017 I don't want 2017 to be the best year we've had I want 2018 to be the best year we've had and I want 2019 to supersede that and 2020 to supersede that. And, and 2018 is going to be amazing for our church. It's just going to be, God is doing so many things. He's bringing so many tributaries together to form this big river. And, and he's just going to push us into there. And we're going we're gonna to go where he goes. Uh, Romans says this, and I'm going to close with this. It says, because before I read this, if we're going to do this, it's going to require love. It's going to require love where we've never had a love before. It's going to require self-denial. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require us to, um, yeah, it's going to require us to give up some things in order to see God move. And Romans 13 says, it says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments You shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Awakening. Time has come for our church to wake up from sleep because salvation is nearer to us today than when we first believed the night is far gone the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light holiness it's going to require us to be holy let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies drunkenness sexual morality sensuality quarreling jealousy we look that seems like a weird list that's exactly what we're (laughs) what we love to do is all listed right there he says but put on the lord jesus christ Just think about that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we're putting on a person. We're putting on the Messiah, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Guys, we're cowering in the corner as a church in the dark when we were made to be children of light. We're made to walk in the light and we're over here, just cowering in the corner, sleeping in the corner as sleepy, groggy Christians. And God is saying it's time for us to wake up and to be who we're supposed to be. And we're just like Daniel in exile in a hostile foreign environment. And it looks like there's no hope and it looks like you're in despair. But God says, there is hope. You're the seed of the kingdom, and you need to wake up and realize that. Yeah you have problems in your life. I don't want to downplay those, I don't want to cast those aside. But I do want to say that Jesus is greater than your problems. He's greater than your issues at work that are stopping you from living out your faith. He's greater than your issues in your family and in your marriage and in your singleness that are stopping you from moving forward in faith he's greater than your career troubles he's greater than anything and what we've done is we've we've exchanged the god of the universe for our troubles and he's saying wake up it's time to stop cowering in the corner the gates of hell shall not prevail against us he's saying so let's move forward and be the church ask god this morning what he wants for you in 2018. Ask God what he wants for our church in 2018. I hope that if you're part of our church that you're asking that because there's people who aren't part of our church that are asking that for us, so we should be asking that. What does God want, want for us? And a lot of times we ask, we ask this question, God, what do you want us to do for you? God doesn't need you to do anything for him. He's giving you an invitation to do something with him. And he's inviting you to work alongside him and to work with him. So let's do that as a church in 2018. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've called us to something greater than ourselves. Thank you that what you've called us to do we cannot do apart from you. Now we're not able. Now you've given us something so big that we can't accomplish it on our own. We can only do it with you. So we say as a church, just as Moses said in Exodus chapter 33, that we do not want to go where you haven't gone. That you need to go before us so that we can follow. And thank you that you've given us an invitation to follow and to work with you. We love you, Jesus, and we give this service over to you. In your name, amen.